Today's scripture reading comes from Samuel chapter 14, verses 24 through 30. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people had come to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. When the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they had found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you again for this day. Thank you for this time to come here and worship you, Lord. Lord, I pray you be with those um, who can't be here today due to sickness. Lord, put your healing hand on them, Lord. I pray you would uh, heal them quickly, speak to their hearts today um, through being able to hear uh, the word being preached, bring them back to us quickly, Lord. Lord, I pray you be with Mark, bless his study. Lord, I pray you would speak through him, give us open hearts and discerning minds. Lord, I pray that everything done here today be for your glory and our good. In your name, amen. Amen. Good morning. It's like, uh, sometimes it feels like the very first snowfall. It's like everybody goes, really? I mean, we do live in Minnesota, and we have been spoiled. And I'm sorry, I prayed last night that a lot of snow would come. So it's my fault, because I love snow. I grew up with brown Christmases, and I moved to Minnesota for, well, a couple of reasons. But one of them being snow. I love snow. Absolutely. I didn't enjoy shoveling it, but I love the way it looks. I love the cool weather, the cold weather. There's just something about winter that just, ah, I just love it. I just absolutely love it. So I'm glad that you're here, that you braved the snow and the slick roads, and that you, were, you came to worship with us today. Um, if you're wondering, okay, so it's Advent season, there's snow on the ground, everybody's thinking about Christmas, and we're reading 1 Samuel. How does that make any sense? Well, the Bible, the whole Bible, and Christ says this to his disciples on the road to Emmaus. He says this multiple times. Scripture says this multiple times. All of Scripture points to Christ. And so I've said this a number of times. Every Sunday is Christmas for us, and every Sunday is also Easter for us. And so to the world around us, or even just, you know, obviously we don't have these decorations up every week, but every week is Christmas and every week is Easter for us as God's people. And so what's strange is that, okay, Christmas time is celebration of Christ's birth, but it's not just about his birth, it's about his death, which is why we're doing communion. And so if it's true that all the scripture points to Christ somehow leads us to the understanding of Christ being the Savior, then we can read for Samuel about honey and faint armies and things like that, and somehow 
through this reading of Scripture, get to Christ, get to His birth, get to His death, and in the end, will, as God's people, bring us to glorify Him. So that's why we're not doing any... I've, I've done special Advent services and messages and everybody... You guys have all heard it. If you've been around the church long enough, you've heard them all. It's, uh, you know, not, it's not bad. I love the book of Luke. I do. I absolutely love it. But this also helps us to understand that as we're reading Scripture, we can tend to read 1 Samuel and go, well, okay, this is an interesting story. The reality is, is that it points to Christ. And we have to figure out why would God tell us this story, this true narrative, this true historical event of Saul and Jonathan and the army and the Philistines, and how in the world does that point to Jesus? Well, I'm glad you asked, because that's our goal, is today we want to figure out how does all of this point to Christ? As we've been working through First, Saul, uh, First Samuel, Saul has really done, the King Saul has really done very little to give us any confidence in him as a godly leader. He avoids his calling. He is timid as a military leader. He only moves when either the Spirit of God forces him and, 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 and dwells inside of him and, and overwhelms him to that, so that he does act, or his son Jonathan does something to force his hand. And he, Saul, has only a veneer of godliness. He looks like a king but his actions don't match that description. In today's passage, Saul is at the epicenter of a troubling situation that threatens to derail a great victory. And I'll give it away. It does derail the great victory. It was Jonathan says, as Dan had just read. These events take place actually during the battle that started with Jonathan and his armor bearer. We looked at that last week. So Jonathan and his armor bearer, they go and they battle a garrison of the Philistines. It starts this massive battle. God works, creates an earthquake, throws the Philistines in a panic. They're scattering everywhere. And that's when Saul says, oh, hey, look, bad things are happening. Let's go fight the Philistines now. So what happens in the chapter today that we're reading, is actually during the battle. This is a pretty normal um, Hebrew way of writing. Um, one instance of this, it happens quite a few throughout times throughout Scripture. One of the instances is right in the book of Genesis. God has all that creates, Genesis 1, all of creation is made. It talks about all the days and everything that happened. And then chapter 2 goes into more detail of how God created man and woman. It's not two separate creations. It's a general description and then a specific description of what happens. This is what's going on right now in these verses. And so there is a troubling event that's going to be taking place, and it starts actually, actually with Saul. So let's continue reading. We're going to go chapter 14, 1 Samuel chapter 14. We're going to read verses 24 through 30. Uh, sorry, no, that was already read. Ha, don't want to do that. 31, 31 through 35, and then we're going to work our way through it. And they struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them. 
Ah, that is not. Anyway, all right, let's do 30, 24 through 30. You've got to give the whole story here, right? And that was red. Holy cow. It's snowing outside. Jeez. Good morning. Holy cow. My brain is not working all of a sudden. Everything's off kilter. Verse 24, look at verse 24. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul laid an oath on the people. Show forgiveness, right? Why were the men, why was the army hard-pressed that day? Well, the ESV's translation, he says, so Saul had laid an oath on the people, but it isn't quite adequate because it actually makes it sound like the oath came because the army was hard-pressed. But in actuality, it was Saul's oath which made the cause of such trouble. The word cursed or anathema means to cut off. This is the same word used in the Old Testament to describe those who disobey the commands of God. You disobey the commands of God, you are cut off from the people of God. And Saul's reasoning for using such a strong word, we are told, is vengeance. He wanted to see the Philistines routed in such a way that they would cease to be a trouble to him. But such a rash vow actually has the opposite effect. No one was to eat a bite of food until the Philistines were beaten. And for an army fighting and pursuing all day, I mean, I'm not a military guy, but that just doesn't make much sense. It's a crazy oath because the soldiers need food to keep their energy up so they can continue to fight. And nobody dared to disobey the oath out of being cut off from the people of God. That's, that's a big deal. That is until Jonathan comes into the forest, and it's a forest that, I love this, it's dripping with honey. I mean, there's so much honey. The army could eat all this honey, and there'd still be some left over. And Jonathan, he had literally been fighting all day from the beginning of the battle to the end because he was, of course, the one who started the battle in the first place. And so he's tired and he's hungry. He needs energy and he couldn't pass up an opportunity like dripping honey. His eyes brightened, his energy returned, but then he was told the bad news of his father's oath. And Jonathan's response, though, it wasn't out of fear. Everybody else did not want to be cut off. And he wasn't like, oh, no, what have I done? It was his re a response instead of disappointment. He says, my father has troubled the land. Why? Well, because the army was faint during the battle and it was causing them to slacken their attack. They just didn't have the energy to pursue the Philistines anymore. And if... Saul had allowed the people to eat from the spoil of the battle with the Philistines, there would have been a great defeat of this huge army. But as it was, the Philistines make it back home, and they were a constant thorn in the, in the side of Saul throughout his entire rule. But the army didn't give up. To their credit, they fought as best as they, as they could with as little energy as they had, but eventually this brings about a troubling sin, a sin that actually could have been prevented. And so now let's go to verse, chapter 14. We're going to read verses 31 through 35. 
And so they, the army, struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon. And the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. When they told, then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to, to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter, slaughter them here and eat. But do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. For a second time, we are told that the people were faint. And as we've said here, when something is repeated in a passage, it's probably important. It probably gives us an indication as to what the, import, uh, the understanding of the passage should be. Well, the inevitable result of their faintness comes in the very next verse, verse 20, 32. It says, the people pounced on the spoil. They battled the Philistines all day. They kept the oath of Saul. They did what they were supposed to do. But once night came and the vow was finished, they pounced on the livestock left behind by the Philistines. You ever been so thirsty or so hungry that you could just eat anything or just drink a gallon of water? You're just so famished. And so dehydrated. This is where the army is. Of course they pounced on the spoil. They were famished. They were weak. So much so that they didn't even wait for the blood to drain from the animal. An act that is clearly prohibited by God. The blood was the life of the animal. And that blood was reserved as an offering to be given to the Lord. And so to eat meat with blood in it was to violate the holiness and the sacredness of God's command. Now, to Saul's credit, he immediately acts when he's told of the army's sin. And now, how much sincerity is there in Saul's action to protect the holiness of God's law? We aren't told, uh, but he does he does provide a way for the blood to be removed from the animals, and he builds an altar to the Lord. Those are all good things, but from what we know of Saul so far, ritual, spiritual rituality and, and looking the spiritual part is way more important to him than actual, true obedience to the command of God. But either way, it's important to note that in Saul's oath, it was Saul's oath which drove the people to sin in such a way. Now, again, don't hear me wrong. The people are still personally responsible for their sin. But the burden of obedience also lies with the leadership. It would be similar to a pastor leading people to believe and to act against the clear teachings of God's word. The people are responsible for re uh, believing such false teachings. They should recognize it, correct it, or leave such a false teacher. But it's the pastor who is also held responsible by God. In fact, leaders in the church are held to a higher standard by God to lead His people into the truth of His Word. 
which means if I teach false doctrine, if I teach something other con- something contrary to what the Word of God actually says, and you believe it, you are held responsible for it. But when I get to heaven, I'm going to be held to a greater responsibility because I'm the one who misled you. So Saul's troubling oath brings about a troubling sin, but another troubling event is actually to take place. Now, if you know me right, I hate those whole, you know, lots of T's, three-point sermon. Actually, did you notice I add a fourth one in the bulletin? Yeah. There's a lot of troubling things that happen here, and that's all with the Scriptures. What it says, there's lots of troubling events, lots of troubling sins, lots of troubling oaths, and Jonathan's life is on the line, again, because of Saul. So, let's read verses 36 through 44. And then Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, shall we go down to the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he, that is God, did not answer him that day. And Saul said, come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, you shall be on one side and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, I, O Lord, God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, cast the lot between me and my son, Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of my staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. And Saul said, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Saul is trying to be bold. But his boldness, again, I know know there's there's a few of you in here who are veterans. This is a crazy military way, uh, think of militarily. It's just, it's just nuts. These guys have been fighting all day long. They're absolutely famished. They finally get some meat in them. They finally get a little bit of energy. And then Saul says, hey, let's fight them all night. Because that sounds smart, right? It's not. It makes no sense militarily. And in telling the men his plan, they respond with an enthusiastic, well, do whatever seems good to you. I've talked to some military veterans that when they get, get, they shall rename nameless, okay? But when they get orders from the top, usually they go like, all right, whatever. Like, it's dumb, but okay, it's an order. I have to do it. Not surprisingly, because there is so little confidence in Saul. Surprising, not surprisingly, Saul is actually doing what seems good to him, and everybody knows it. 
In fact, it's a priest, probably a hija from the previous chapter, who suggests that they seek, well, what does is, what is God say? Maybe we should consult God and see what He thinks we should do. And even a priest from the rejected priestly line of Eli knows that it's always good to seek God's will before going into battle when you're the people of God. And so Saul seemingly hasn't thought of this, and so he goes, okay, I agree to it. And so he asks God, what God, what do you want? And not surprisingly, God doesn't answer him. Now, for us, we know why, and Saul should know why, that the reason for God's silence is because of Saul's offering an unlawful sacrifice in chapter 13, which is why the kingdom was removed from his descendants. It's his sin, his sin, which has created the gulf between him and the Lord, but he assumes someone in the army must have done something wrong. It couldn't have been him. It must have been one of the soldiers. And so he calls for a lot to be taken. The following scene actually could be a little bit difficult to process. I wrestled with this. I struggled with it. Um, So how do we understand what happens next? God isn't listening to Saul when he asks for guidance. Of course, makes sense. So is God going to actually listen to Saul when he asks for a lot? God, tell us what to do. God doesn't answer. I know. Let's, Lord, make this lot work out. Let's cast lots and see what's going to happen. Is God going to actually listen to Saul in that moment? And I, I would have to say no. And yet, the lot falls correctly on Jonathan. Have you ever thought about that? God's not in it. God's not there. He's not listening to Saul. And yet, the lot falls correctly on Jonathan. He's the one who broke the oath, even if he didn't know it. He's the one who went against the express wishes of the king, even if he was ignorant of those express wishes. And yet the lot falls on him correctly. How is that possible if God's not listening to Saul? Well, there's really two options that we have here. First, the lot fell by coincidence. You don't have to be a math major to understand that the odds of rolling, you got one and a two, the odds of rolling a two, two times in a row, is pretty good, 50%, right? So it is possible. The laws of chance would make it possible for everything to fall correctly twice in a row. But if we are to read Scripture, the straightforward reading of God's Word, the whole of Scripture tells us that coincidence and God don't really go together. It doesn't make any sense because if, if God is sovereign, which the Bible teaches, that He has power over all things, then coincidence goes directly against who God has revealed Himself to be. To, we have to believe that God, for some reason, made the lot fall on Jonathan. So why would God, in essence, this is, this is the way I would say, throw Jonathan under the bus? Why would he do such a thing? This great Savior, as the people describe him or will soon describe him, bringing about this great salvation in Israel, why would God throw him to the wolves? Well, if we let the text speak for itself, it seems that God is using it not only to reveal Saul's spiritual hardness, 
he was willing to kill his own son to keep his rash and inappropriate vow, his oath. And if this reminds you, if you know the Bible, of Jephthah and the killing of his daughter because he made a rash oath, that's what you're meant to think of. This judge, Jephthah, makes a rash vow. There's such a great victory, I'm going to get home, and the first thing that walks through my front door, I'm going to kill as a sacrifice to the Lord. Like, do you have your cows living in your house? And he gets there, and his daughter walks through for the very first time, and he says, well, she's got to die. And he kills her. That's how low Israel was during the time of the judges. Well, Saul's no different. He is willing to kill his own son rather than admit that his oath was not only militarily crazy, but it was inappropriate. But it also revealed that Jonathan's spiritual humility. He doesn't hide the breaking of the vow, and he's willing to give his own life as payment for that disobedience. You break the vow, the penalty is death. Jonathan knows this. He doesn't complain. He's willing to admit his sin. But Saul is not. But this quote-unquote savior, Jonathan of Israel, strangely enough, is about to be saved himself. These last two verses, verses 45 and 46, and then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it, as the Lord lives. So here's their own oath. There shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. And then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. The people take an oath themselves as the Lord lives. Jonathan will not die. The people stand up for their king. Where Saul is willing to sacrifice his own son for a folly-filled oath, the people are unwilling to see their Savior end in such a way. And so, did you catch that word? They ransom Jonathan. They ransom him. They pay his debt of disobedience to Saul. Their actions release Jonathan from the penalty of death. They redeem Jonathan. It's the same word. We aren't told how this happens, whether it's by sacrifice or they pay money or whatever it may be, but the result is Jonathan's full pardon. And everybody goes on with life. The Philistines go home to live another day and to fight another day, and Israel goes back to their homes. You see, the book of Samuel is full of contradictions and comparisons. Samuel is obedient to God. Saul is disobedient. Jonathan is spiritually faithful to the Lord. Saul's spirituality is a veneer giving the look of faithfulness, but he is far from faithful. But our passage today, especially these last two verses, point us to a different kind of contrast. See, Jonathan may have been the savior of Israel for that day, 
But there's only one true Savior of God's people for all eternity. Even as Israel's Savior, Jonathan, he needed to be redeemed. He had sinned. And he admitted it. I've sinned. Something needs to happen. The debt must be paid. Even if that sin was unintentional. And the people of Israel stepped up and they said, we will pay that debt for Jonathan. But you fast forward to Jesus Christ, who is sinless. He didn't sin intentionally, and he never sinned unintentionally. He lived the perfect life. He had no need to be redeemed. But the people of God did. You see the comparison here? The Savior, Jonathan, needed to be redeemed, and the people redeem him. But the Savior, Jesus Christ, doesn't need to be redeemed, and instead he redeems the people. He gives himself, or gave himself, Jesus Christ did as a ransom. In the words of Christ himself, Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And in stark contrast with the people who redeemed Jonathan, you have the chief priests and the Pharisees of Christ's day. They they saw Christ's great works. He raises Lazarus from the dead and they hear about this great work work and they start to get worried that the people are going to start believing that Jesus is the Messiah. Huh, interesting, huh? All of these great works are all evidence He is God in the flesh. He is the coming long-awaited Messiah. He is the Savior. And the high priests are trying to figure out, what do we do with this guy? They're afraid that the Romans are going to come in and destroy them. And the high priest stands up and he says, don't you understand? And he spoke these prophetic words without realizing he was speaking prophetic words. He says, it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Which is exactly what Christ did. He died for his people so that his people might live for all eternity. Jesus, the one who brought great salvation to the people of God, willingly gave his life as a ransom for your sin and for my sin in order to what? To save us so that we might have eternal life in the presence of God. Here's the kicker. We are Saul. We don't like that, do we? Ah, just wait till we get to David and Goliath. Then you're really not going to like it. We're not David. Hint. We are Saul. We can put a veneer of spirituality and deceive everybody around us. And yet God knows us deep down. We are Jonathan. We strive to do the right thing. We even admit our sin. 
but we're still in need of redemption. We are the people of God. We are Israel, disobedient. We see wrongs and we want to right them, but in the end, we need to be redeemed. We are in need of ransom, and it's Jesus who paid our debt. We like to think of Christ, especially at Christmas time, and maybe, maybe this is just an issue with me, so maybe if, if we can have a conversation one-on-one with this later, but it always bothers me that with Christmas there's this, you know, it's like, it, I know it's the time of peace, peace on earth, goodwill to men, like we, we focus on that, and that's really good, but we realize that Christ came to earth as a baby so that he can be killed for you and for me. Like we, we imagine him being born and, and we forget all the turmoil that Joseph and Mary not only had gone through but are going to go through. She was accused of marital unfaithful, unfaithfulness, infidelity, sexual immorality. And that was far from the truth and nobody, she knew. Joseph finally knew once the angel told him. He came into a circumstance with Israel under the, under the thumb of Rome. He came as a baby into a very hard life and a hard place. He willingly left his throne in heaven to come here. And as God's people, how anxious are we to get there? <laughs> and yet he came here willingly. He came as a baby so that 33 years later, he might be crucified, which is why you cannot separate Christmas from Easter or Easter from Christmas. They are always connected. And yet again, like Jonathan, he willingly gave his life. He willingly gave his life. The difference is Jonathan was redeemed and Christ is the Redeemer. When the angel appeared to Joseph to tell him, don't don't divorce Mary, and to tell him the situation, what really had, she was not unfaithful to you. Instead, he says, Mary is going to bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He's not even born. He's already connected to the crucifixion. He will give his life. Joseph, Mark, so that you will be saved. And so you have to ask yourself this question, especially at Christmas time. Do you believe? Do you believe these words? Do you believe that Jesus is the Redeemer? Do you believe that Jesus is the only one who can save you from your sins, who can pay the price, pay the ransom that is due, which is death for our sins against the Holy God? Now, here's the thing. Saul, and this is what I wrestled with this this past week. 
Saul did not see his sin as an affront to the holiness and the sacredness of God. He didn't think it was a big deal. I mean, the armies, yes, or Jonathan's, absolutely, but not mine. That's what was going through his mind. He did not see his sin as an affront to the holiness of God, which is my heart so many times. I, I, I show grace to myself, and yet I condemn others. And I, I don't know if you feel that. I'm assuming you do. If we're all human, because we like grace for us, but like how, how dare that person do that? The problem is, is I look at my heart and I see the sin that I wrestle with on a regular basis or just even one time and I go, do I understand that my sin is an affront to God's holiness? If you see that and you believe that the only way to clean that slate is through the blood of Jesus Christ being shed to cover our sins, to redeem and save us. If you believe that, guess what? You are not anathema. You are not cut off. You are welcome, open arms, and not just like until the next time you sin, but forever because his blood covers all of your sins. And if this Christmas, you think Christmas is just a time for beautiful lights and, you know, to show peace and love to other people, because I'm going to, gosh darn it, I'm going to buckle up. It's a happy time. But you're missing the point that why Christmas is here? I want you to hear these words and understand Christ died for your sins. Will you believe? Will you ponder that? So, when we, we come to the communion table here in, in a minute, that's what we want to ponder. If you believe these words and you're a child of God, this brings you to worship. My God came to save me. He came to cover my sins. And I'm going to worship Him. Because He says, remember what I've done for you. Remember my shed blood. Remember my body being offered to you. Remember this and glorify my name because of what I've done. Now, if you're not a believer, you have not given your, yourself over to Christ, you have not put your faith, you do not believe what, what has just been said, that Christ is your Redeemer, and without Him, you are destined for an eternity in hell, away from God's presence, not an eternity in heaven, with life in His presence. If you do not believe that, then we ask you, refrain from eating. We take this seriously. You cannot remember something that has not happened to you yet. Nobody's going to judge you. If they do, come and talk to me. Then we'll have a conversation about Saul. We're not going to judge. We want you to believe. And if you believe... You don't have to be a member of this church. You can come. It's called Open Communion. You take uh, a cup and you take a piece of bread and we're all going to go to the chairs and then as a family together, a family of God, not of Elm Creek, but a family of God, we're going to take this communion together to remember who is our Redeemer, Christ Jesus, our Lord. So whenever you are ready, take your cup, go back to your seat, ponder 
the truth of who Christ is, and then we will take communion together. So come whenever you're ready.